Hi, this is Scott Miller, author of Management Mess to Leadership Success, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today on episode 400 is Scott Miller. Scott Jeffrey Miller is a highly sought after speaker, author, podcast host, and coach. He's a Wall Street Journal bestselling author and currently serves as Franklin Covey's senior advisor on thought leadership. Prior to his advisor role, Scott was a 25-year Franklin Covey associate serving as chief marketing officer and executive VP. He hosts On Leadership with Scott Miller, the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. Scott lives in Salt Lake City, Utah with his family and is here to talk about his book, Management Mess to Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. Welcome, Scott. Bill, thank you. Thank you for the spotlight and the platform. Honored to be here today. It's great to be with you. We always start off here, Scott, asking about someone who influenced or inspired you when you were growing up. Who comes to mind? You know, it's interesting. There used to be a radio host. His name was Bruce Williams, sort of like before Dave Ramsey. And he was a combination lawyer entrepreneur. And back in the 80s and 90s, he had one of the most famous evening talk radio programs called The Bruce Williams Show. And for, gosh, a decade, I listened to his program every night. Kind of as a nerdy teenager in junior high school, learning about your credit score and how to buy a mortgage and what a repossession was and how to finance an entrepreneurial purchase and when do you need a will and what's the living power of attorney. I learned so many things from Bruce Williams, never met him, passed away a couple of years ago, but Bruce Williams had a profound influence on my business acumen, my understanding of how the world really works behind the scenes, all legality and courts and the value of your credit score, what a FICO score even means. So I really honor Bruce Williams from the 80s and the 90s. Most of my junior high school kids were listening to the B-52s and Sting and Journey. I was that kind of nerd listening to the financial business talk show every night. But I would say Bruce Williams has had a fascinating influence on my life. When you're at that point in your life, do you remember a time either in high school or even shortly after when something he taught you, something you learned from him in his radio show came in handy in some practical way? You made a decision to open, I don't know, an IRA at 17 or you encourage someone early in one of your early career moves to take a step that you had heard from Bruce Williams and it encouraged you to take that leap of faith because he gave you the conviction that this was a smart thing to do. Oh, the power of your credit score, how that is so important in terms of not just some days getting a job, right? Sometimes your credit score is a prerequisite to get a job or a security clearance with the government or how it comes to building wealth or being able to open up a brokerage account or buy a home or buy a car and the interest rate you pay. I think I always knew the impact of it. I just wasn't always going to pay the price in my early 20s and even 30s to treasure it. I equate your credit score as important as your own reputation. It's something you guard jealously and can't neglect. I'm a big advocate of just understanding and being aware of the direct connection between all of your impulses, all of your decisions, good or bad, and impact that it has on your credit score and the impact that has on your ability to be independent and not subject to high interest rates or lower terms on everything you do in life financially. That's so true. It's knowing what the rules of the game are. It's so That's important right. to have that contact. That's exactly right. Is it good to have a lot of credit or a little credit? Is it good to have eight credit cards or no credit cards or pay off half the balances? I mean, you get a lot of different opinions there, but it's important to know all the things that go into making what make up your 
FICO score. Scott, it's that same willingness and eagerness to jump in and learn these things that I think a lot of people who are listeners of the show readily identify with. Interested in knowing what the rules are, but then not necessarily following them, going in, learning by our own mistakes, because it's very important to us to have our own lessons like that. Scott, when you wrote the book, From Management Mess to Leadership Success, it contains stories about your own journey and lessons learned. How did you come to decide to write it? As you mentioned in the opening, I was and am a 26-year now associate of the Franklin Covey Company, the world's most trusted and probably respected leadership development firm based on the original book by Stephen Covey, who authored The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. We're based in Salt Lake City, and I had a decade as the chief marketing officer. We've sold 50 million copies of all of our books, but I'd never read a leadership book, Bill, that really talked about how difficult leadership is. The fact that there's an underbelly of leadership. Not everybody should be a leader of people, just like not everybody should be a commercial airline pilot or an anesthesiologist. For my own 30-year leadership career, I reflected on, should I have even been a leader of people? Because I think too often, Bill, in organizations, the only way to earn more money, have more influence, get promoted is to lead people. And too often, people are lured out of being an individual contributor into being a leader of people. And it's the wrong decision for the company and for them and for the people that they're leading. So true. I would say seduced or incentivized to take the wrong course. Or forced because it's the only way to ever get promoted here and to earn more money. As a result of it, good people that are really bad leaders and then people make judgments on their character and their competence and such. So I decided to write a very raw, vulnerable, true book about 30 challenges that every leader of people faces, including if you're a parent. Because you said it very clearly, and the book is really refreshing in that it is based on your own shortcomings and your sight of how things work. I know that many speakers use this. I learned this from Jack Canfield, where he says the message is your mess. Your mess is your message. And you talked about the mess that you learned from all of your interactions and everything that you came through and how that became your message. These stories from bad decisions to feeling insulted, these are the things that many business leaders would pay good money for to someone extorting them not to be found out, never mind be published in a commercially successful book. How did you keep that level of honesty as you were writing it and saying, wow, this is really telling? Was it that you learned from it or that you just thought it was so important that you wanted to get it out there? Bill, it's such a great question. I philosophically believe believe that we learn more from our messes than we do our successes. I also believe that we learn more from other people's messes than their successes. Because Bill, I don't have your education. I don't have your trust fund. I don't have your handsome looks. I don't have your personality. can't be you. But what I can do is be me and avoid the mistakes you've made. Walk around the metaphorical pothole. Don't do this, do that. Don't say that, say this. Don't think that way. Perhaps think this way. As an increasingly public person with a lot of books published and a large podcast, I thought people could learn from my mistakes. I was very vulnerable. There are things I've written in the book, nothing illegal or immoral sometimes close, but never outright. But I really share, you know, stupid things I said or did in the hopes that other people wouldn't mock me. I'm sure some have taken it to their advantage and my disadvantage, but it was my gift to give the reader or the listener, however they're consuming it. This is my journey as a leader, as an officer in a public global leadership company, where I made a lot of leadership mistakes to give people kind of permission to talk about their messes, but also to teach through them. Because I think the greatest leadership gift you can give those who report to you is to recognize that vulnerability is a leadership competency. The more you are willing to teach through your mistakes, 
people will learn and be loyal to you. So I took a big risk, right? And there are people that have not liked the book. I've been accused of licensing bad behavior. It's preposterous. I just wanted to give a gift to people to say, this was my journey. Here's things I did well. Here's things I did poor. And if you can learn from them, and if it helps you avoid some of the pain that I caused and the pain that I received, then mission accomplished. Scott, I don't know if you know this, but I worked at Apple. And working at Apple, a lot of people mimicked Steve Jobs' behavior back then, 30 years ago. It was something that he didn't have the awareness to talk about vulnerably while he was a leader there, but it's been studied, dissected, discussed, analyzed for three decades since. And you start out your book with a story that I think many people can relate to about being humble. And it was your first sales meeting in your new role of overseeing a group of salespeople who you were a peer with just a few days before. You do things that everyone thinks are the right things to do. You call for a big meeting. You get people together. You bring in outside expertise to talk about a new product. Then what happens? Tell that story, please. Do I have to? Well, I wrote about it, right? Yeah, you got the lead up perfectly right. I called everyone together. I was the new sheriff in town. And like you said, I was their peer a couple of days prior. And I'd organized a really thoughtful two-day professional development meeting, investing in them, helping them learn one of our new leadership solutions so they actually could sell it to clients better. On day one, they were all kind of lazadaical. And I'd gone to great trouble. I'd gotten the budget from the leader and brought in a guest speaker and organized their room and had some catering. And I'd really invested in them. And they yeah, were all at a half an hour. was saying, where's the appreciation? Where I was thinking, yeah, exactly. Where's the appreciation? I mean, the previous person never did this for you. I really am invested in you. Thank you for taking my side, Bill. Anyway, the first day, they were all late. They kind of saundered in 10, 15, 20. We started 30 minutes late. We're a time management company. We don't start 30 minutes late. We're selling time management to our clients. I stewed on it the whole day. They knew I was irritated about it. I was really frustrated. I asked everyone to come to the meeting on time the next day. But like all leaders, I started to perseverate at home as a single guy, thinking about it, getting more and more pissed off before day two. So I went that morning and instead of buying fruit and croissants, I went and bought 15 or so copies of the Salt Lake Tribune. And sure enough, the next morning, people were late. They sauntered in late. I was super enraged. So in my greatest leadership moment ever, I decided to pull the classified ads out of the Salt Lake Tribune. And I basically tossed them down in front of everybody with a yellow highlighter and said, listen, if you don't appreciate this, if you don't want to work here, Dillard's is hiring. If you want a nine to five, go work at Dillard's. And I thought, this is my greatest leadership moment ever. I told them, I'm in charge. You can't be late. And to a T, they either looked at me, got up and walked out, quit on the spot, or called me inside and said, you are a jerk. What is it you're trying to prove? Because it's not working. It took about three hours to pull them all back together. The consultant inspired me to apologize disingenuously to them. It took me months to realize that, that was probably my worst leadership moment, not my finest. At that point, in your mind, you thought, I'm going to make this point and they're all going to snap too. Oh, totally. I thought, I'm going to in to compliance. I'm going to berate them into respecting me. By the way, this is like 20 years ago. There was no great resignation. There were no options. You didn't quit your job before you had a job and it took four months to find a job. They weren't on iPhones looking for jobs and accepting jobs as you were doing this exercise. Like they would be. There was be no dead. LinkedIn. There was no careerbuilder.com. There was nothing. There was 
those fax machines and resumes. To their credit, most of them got up and walked out. And one of them said, I'm quitting. Now, to my credit, I had a three-year rapport with them. So they knew Scott can be a jerk. Scott's a pretty good guy. Maybe we'll give him a second chance. It was not without a lot of groveling. We got them all back together again. I think I mentioned in the story, 10 years later, almost all of them that were still around came to my wedding and we're all still good friends to this day. But I learned that leadership, to quote John Maxwell. If you're a leader and you're up on a mountain, you look behind you, no one's behind you. You're a hiker. You're not a leader. I really learned a lot around talking straight, but doing so in a way that is respectful, that is genuine, that's vulnerable, setting the guidelines, setting expectations, not slamming down the newspaper ad saying Dillard's is hiring if you want a nine to five. I'm glad I told the story because I'll bet you there are a lot of leaders that have either done just that or the metaphorical equivalent of that. And it feels good in the moment. It never builds the culture and the loyalty and the inspiration you want over time. Yeah. You mentioned that you'd been there three years, so you had built up a lot in your trust accounts with them. And that took a big hit that day, but you were able to call on that in order to bring them back together into the room. That's one of the risks of bringing in someone new who doesn't have that level of trust and established relationship with people to make that kind of mistake. By the way, I was 20 five-year-old or 27-year-old leader. I mean, this happens all the time. I learned of a story recently where an executive level dean from an Ivy League university moved across the country to a large state public university. And he didn't last eight months because he had everything credentialized on paper, but he didn't understand empathy. He didn't know how to listen. He didn't know how to tap into people's passions and inspire them and motivate them. It was like me in my 20s and he was in his 60s. So it doesn't matter your age or sophistication. These leadership challenges these principles I write about declaring your intent and listening and building trust, offering apologies, showing humility. These are things that are common to all leaders, regardless of your experience or sophistication. Let's pick up on the one you mentioned, declaring your intent. I hear complaints from managers every week who are upset with the lack of clarity when people they work with ask others to commit time, whether it's to read something for feedback without context or hold a Zoom meeting with participants that aren't really a good fit for the objective of the meeting, or even have a phone call with a wandering agenda. You talk about this in your book, and not everyone is out to gain a victory like the Victorian military advice you quote, which says, conceal your purpose and hide your progress. Do not disclose the extent of your designs until they can be opposed, until they cannot be opposed, until the combat is over. This isn't what's going on. People are just being unfocused, easy, untrained. Where have you seen the lack of intent cause friction, misunderstandings, or lack of trust in your work recently? What happens all the time, right, is absent facts, people make stuff up. Absent you declaring your intent, your agenda, your motivation, people will ascribe one to you. It's why it's such an important part of this book, Management Mess to Leadership Success. If you want to diffuse ambiguity, if you want to avoid dysfunction and people assuming bad intent, then you must declare your intent. And that comes down, Bill, to actually using that phrase. Whenever there might be a high courage conversation or an opportunity where there might be high emotions or confusion, or where someone might suspect you have have a hidden agenda. Because the fact of the matter is, all of us have hidden agendas. Even the most noble people still have hidden agendas. Some of them are more nefarious than others, and some are more hidden than others. But the fact of the matter is, all of us have hidden agendas. All of us. 
you and me included. As a leader, I think it is important to declare your intent. Now, if you have a nefarious hidden agenda, you probably shouldn't declare that. You probably should check, why do I have a self-serving hidden agenda? I want to take credit for something that isn't mine, or I want to somehow distort the contributions of other members. People are jockeying for attention these days. Of course they are. Yeah, of course they are. I think the solution to most of that is to declare your intent. Walk into a meeting. Perhaps you're having a meeting with someone on your team, and you say, Bill, hey, thanks for coming in today. I need to have a high courage conversation with you. Let's set it in here. We'll stay in here. I need to talk to you about some behaviors I'm seeing from you that are jeopardizing your influence here. I might use the wrong words. I might even need to do over. But I want you to know first and foremost, Bill, my intent is not to embarrass you. My intent is not to diminish you or to lessen your self-esteem. My intent is the opposite. My intent is to help you see some of your blind spots, to give you some feedback on areas in which you're performing that I think you don't see that are really inhibiting your ability to grow and even stay here. Now, let's talk about, Bill, what's happening. You get the point, is to call it out and declare what your intent is and what it is not. Then make sure that your real intent does align with what you just said. Because if your intent is to railroad them out of the company, then don't say it's not. If your intent is to genuinely give them some private feedback on their blind spots, then do that. I think the first part of declaring your intent is understanding your intent and then actually using those words. Allow me to take a moment and first declare my intent. Bill, my intent is not to hijack or torpedo your project. My intent is not to delay your project. My intent is to help you land it on time, on budget. And first, I have three questions that I need answers to before I can help you land your project on time. What's an example of a time you were in a meeting and somebody declared what their intent was and was not, and it really diffused some of the tension or anxiety in the meeting because it wasn't clear up until that point? Well, I think it's rare because my experience has been most of us think people understand our intent. But the fact isn't the case is we tend to judge other people by their behaviors and we want them to judge us by our intent. Well, that's not what I meant or I didn't mean to offend her or I didn't mean to delay your project. I think it's rare. I don't have a lot of examples. I think oftentimes if someone doesn't declare their intent, we assume, we make it up, we're suspect. What do they really mean? What are they really trying to accomplish? Oh, they're just doing this to further their own career or get promoted or they really want to minimize this person. I know their game. That's really important because that's a small thing that people can do. Every manager listening, every leader, rising star can be saying to themselves, if I declare my intent for inviting people to a meeting, here's what we intend to accomplish. We want to solve this problem and make this decision. Here's my intent for having this one-on-one. I'd like to come up with a solution to this issue that is harming morale within the company. By declaring your intent, every listener can now take this advice and stand out from the pack with minimal effort just by overt with their intent. So I really appreciate you for bringing that point up, Scott. In fact, you also wrote about Dr. Blaine Lee, who wrote the book, The Power Principle, Influence with Honor, said nearly all, if not all, conflict arises from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. So make sure that you intend people to hear and see what it actually is that you want them to see and hear. The less clear you are, the more you're responsible for their lack of clarity. How do you help people understand who are on your team or who that you're coaching, that it is part of our responsibility to help clarify not only our intent, but the people with whom we interact? Bill, it's a profound quote from Dr. Blaine Lee, right? Nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Listeners, just listen to that. I'm gonna say it again. Nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes 
comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. I thought you were going to do this and you thought you were going to do that. You thought I was going to do this and I thought you were actually going to do that. Or I never thought I was going to do that. Only you thought I was going to do that. Whether it's delivering on commitments or revenue goals or brownies for the block party or volunteering at your synagogue, whatever it is. The best leaders are those that create clarity. That often requires you to move outside your comfort zone and discuss the undiscussable. Might be you setting boundaries. No, I cannot coach next month's soccer game. No, I can't sign up for that revenue goal. No, I can't make 800 icebox cookies by Friday night. Like to, but right now I'm already fully committed. And if something changes, I'll let you know, but I don't want to disappoint you. I'd rather disappoint you right now than to say I will do it and then violate our expectations and then disappoint you and put you in a bind later on. It requires you to exercise a level of courage that most of us aren't comfortable having, either because we fear the person won't like us or they'll be disappointed in us or or our brand will suffer. What suffers more? You saying, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Or you saying, yes, I will do that. And then later not doing it. And now your reputation is bruised. I think no matter what role you are in as a parent, as a partner, as a spouse, as a neighbor, as a committee member, when you take the effort to move outside your comfort zone, it might be clarifying the price of having your car detailed or your house clean or a tree cut down. If you think about most conflict in life, it's because you and somebody else had expectations from each other that were never fully agreed upon, or even if they were, you use different terms or different measures, and it wasn't super clear. I think that whole idea of expectations and clarifying them is super important. Now let's talk about the other side of it, which is when you make a commitment and you have the resources and everything that's within your control and ability to influence you bring to bear on solving that problem, and still you're unable to come through. But you grow as a result of that. When the times that you can deliver on stepping up, putting an extra effort, making decisions that really help you fulfill on your commitments, you grow as a result. One story that I remember from your book about a woman who committed to coming to a two-day conference. She was in Canada. You had a meeting and she was unable to get there because there was some huge weather problem. And she sent you the slides. You called everyone you could imagine to help facilitate that meeting. You blasted it out. You made it through the first day. And the next day is, wow, I just spent the last 48 hours learning everything I could about this topic from the PowerPoint slides and the notes, but I ain't got nothing left to go for day two. And as you look up, what did you see in the back of the auditorium or rather who? I saw the consultant that said she couldn't come because I flew across the night to deliver the program, but so did she. Even though we agreed I would own it and I would cover it. It's a great story. In fact, some people have misunderstood that story's about me. That story's not about me. That story's about her. The fact that even though we agreed that I would learn the content and deliver the program for the client, she took a series of connecting flights to get there. What's interesting about the story is she made a commitment and then I released her from that commitment. She chose to keep it. And then she flew across the country and instead of interrupting me on stage and there to save the day, she stood in the back of the room, Mike, ready to go, but just watched me. And then at a break, she said, hey, just so you know, I'm here if you need any help. I'm like, do I need help? Yes, I need help. But she didn't know. Most of us would have been the hero and I made it. But no, she let me 
shine and struggle a bit. But then she was there. And the moment I knew she was there, I said, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're here. I gave her the microphone in like one minute and she crushed it. But to me, it was two things. She made and kept a commitment even after we both had agreed that she would be released from that commitment. Then when she chose to keep it, she didn't rush in to save the day. She was there if I needed her. And I think the real learning there also is that she let me shine until she thought maybe it was getting a bit tough for me. It was a a massive, generous gift she gave me on so many levels. You got to read the story to fully appreciate it. The story is not about me. The story is about her. So true. Because she was there to offer her grace and support as you were on stage and doing the best you can to fulfill the expectations of everyone who had arrived for that. In my read of the story, you weren't even supposed to attend that meeting. No, no. You flew out to be able to make sure that there was some delivery that took place that day. I and was all- like one minute and one page ahead of 300 people, like thinking, what am I going to say next? Anyway, it's a good story to realize that your reputation is really the collection of all the decisions you make in life and all the commitments that you keep in life. She could have easily have not come. I never would have thought twice about it. But it, it has was been- a, sort of a hardship to come. She had to take all of these short hop flights. It was a mess as I read it. Yes, total mess. But oh, I'm glad she did. Oh, I'm glad she came. <laughs> I'm delighted you shared that story. Thanks. One of the other things that people think about with delivering results is people who have high integrity know that delivering results that they promise is something that they commit to. And they really understand that word commit. Many managers often forget in the rush to deliver results, something that professional jockeys demonstrated every race. Can you talk about that distinction and the lesson that we need to keep in mind? It's such a strange analogy. I had forgotten about that. This was several books ago to your audience. I do write my books. I just forgot about that story. In essence, I use an example, and I don't follow horse racing or dressage at all, but I do know it to be a fact that jockeys love their horses more than they love winning. Meaning these jockeys take extraordinary care of these horses. And you see when a horse is hurt, the best jockeys don't push horses beyond their efforts, right? Because they need this horse to be cared for for the next race. They jump off and you see them sometimes hold their hoof and walk them to the stable, whatever it's called. Again, I'm not an expert on horse racing, but I use that metaphor in leadership because I think it's important not to push people beyond their limits. You got to set goals that are stretch goals, but that are attainable. Because people want to win. People don't want to continually miss the goal. You've got to give people stretch projects and stretch assignments, but not so much that they drown or they fail. Also, you can't rush in and save the day and be the rescuer or the protector at all times. And so I think leadership isn't for everyone. It takes a certain kind of person that really understands that sort of clutch and gas on a stick shift card. Like how much clutch do you give it? How much gas do you give it? If you pop the clutch, you lurch it forward. Too much gas, you run over light poles and other cars. I learned to drive on a stick shift Jeep and it was horrifying for me. So I still today have a lot of leadership metaphors when it comes to driving a stick shift car. You, I imagine the people in your hometown. <laughs> and, my, and my dad standing in front of the car, right? As I almost mowed down a light pole in our front yard. But I think the big learning here uh, and with the jockey metaphor is just having the calibration to understand what is stretch, what is crush. What is a phone in and what is an accomplishment that we're proud of? And how do you treat people in a way that both achieves results today and a way that allows you to 
use their same passions and talents to achieve results next week, next month, next year. Because people can work hard in spurts. People can give Herculean efforts in short bursts. But people don't want to and won't work for a leader or a company that crushes them physically, mentally, emotionally, nonstop in perpetuity. You've got to know when to use the clutch, when to use the gas, and quite frankly, when to use the brake. When to park and rest. I think that a lot of people these days are not sure because they're not getting the right feedback or signals. I hear from people week in and week out talking about how they're surprised that people haven't looked at the personal time off. And there's just so much vacation time that has gone unclaimed when it's so important to make sure that we rejuvenate. One of the other lessons that I take away from this, Scott, is I love the idea between capacity and tapping that capacity. In Seven Habits, it was written about as the golden goose versus the golden eggs that the goose lays. It's looking at the capacity to make sure that people are getting rest, that they are getting recognized, that they're getting rewarded for the additional effort that they're putting in. What are some additional reminders that you would offer listeners to make sure that we keep that perspective about production capacity and actually the results of the production. I think you just did. You, just, you said it beautifully. Is the fable of the goose and the golden egg is you've got to make sure that you're not strangling the goose to reach inside and get the eggs. I always thought that was a stupid fable in my 20s and 30s and then I became a parent and then a competent leader of people and realized the best leaders post-pandemic, if we can even call it that right now, at least post the great resignation because it's starting to be the great reevaluation and the great re-engagement or whatever you want to call it, is you've got to know how to calibrate. You've got to know that your people want to be liked. They want to be respected. They want to recognize that you care about them more than just what they can do for your company and your bottom line. They want to know that you care about their mental health and you see their mental health the same way you see their physical health. That anxiety and depression are no different than pancreatic attack and a broken leg. And that you're very thoughtful and mindful of their whole life and their whole person and that they're bringing their whole lives to work. They're bringing their gender. They're bringing their sexuality. They're bringing their life choices. They're bringing their politics and their passions and their fears and their joys and all of that to work and that you need to make it sure it's a safe place. It doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable for delivering on results. It doesn't mean they get a pass on meeting the measures and the outcomes and the success factors that we hold as a high growth public company. You don't get a pass, but you do get empathy and you do get some flexibility and nimbleness to understand where are you at the season in your life during the week and might we need to create a little more flexibility for you to be able to rise to the occasion of what it takes to work in this company. That's so why I think it's different with every leader and every culture and every industry. But what is consistent is to recognize that vulnerability and empathy are now leadership competencies, just like reading a PL and calculating EBITDA and foreign currency exchange and such. Vulnerability and empathy are absolutely 2022-2023 leadership competencies. Now, a lot of people, I think, are intimidated by talking to others. When I say the word intimidated, I remember a story you wrote in your book about a person who brought you to a meeting and was talking with you and you were getting a bit impatient because the person was wandering. I think his name was Pete. His agenda was wandering. You weren't sure what was going on. And he kept making runs to go at you. And you finally said, Pete, what the heck is the point? Why are we here? Then he was able to actually share the purpose, the real purpose, as we talked about earlier, the hidden intent of why he had brought you to the meeting. As you were leaving the meeting, he had the support or approval, whatever he needed. And he said, boy, that went better than expected. I think a lot of people today are in a similar position 
position. They're not able to accurately read what their boss, their supervisor, their colleague is able to give. So they're afraid to ask for what they really want or need in order to advance their business goals or take care of themselves. What's an example of a conversation you've had where someone had to share with you something that maybe they weren't as forthcoming as they could. They wanted to establish a boundary and just ask you to trust that what they had to do and why they couldn't make a particular deadline or commitment and needed to reevaluate it or renegotiate it had to happen, but they didn't necessarily want to go into the details of a family medical operation or something. Lots of examples of, of bad occurrences. This goes back to declaring your intent, right? This is a meeting that I wrote about in the book. His name's not what I said it was. I changed his name. I had a very competent person and I didn't realize it, but he was actually very intimidated by me, by my personality, by my title, by my stature, by my longevity. I think my personality of being known as a little bit of a hard ass and a, a guy that gets to the point. And I don't always realize how I come across. Like all of us, my self-awareness is growing and I cast a pretty big intimidating shadow. So it's a great story to read in the book. But here I think is a good example, if you don't mind, is let's say you're going in to ask for a raise. I think you should declare your intent. I don't think you should say, my intent is to leave here with a raise. I think you should say, hey, Bill, the purpose of this meeting is for me to understand what would it take for me to earn a raise here under your division? I'd like to know what kinds of behaviors or outcomes or results will you need to see from me in order for me to get a raise? Assuming you're not already seeing them and I am eligible for a raise, could you tell me what is it, if anything, you need to see differently from me for me to earn your support in achieving a raise? I like that phraseology. Now, that, now you might change that differently. You might say something like, the intent of this meeting is for me to understand how I can get promoted and earn a raise, including if I'm already there, or if I'm close to being there, or if by chance you see me far from being there. Now you've given your person options to say, you think you might be any of the three, including ready or not ready, but now you're open to listen to all it is they have to say, because you want to understand what is their decision-making criteria that you may have already met. They didn't know you wanted to raise or it's premature. And now you've set the stage where you understand. And now they know you understand. There may be some things that they've not yet shared with you, but you're open to learning them. I like that example of recognizing that you're mature and aware there may be things that you don't understand, but you want to understand them so you can go do them to get a raise. You're advocating for the employee making this request. I'm going to advocate for the manager here and say a manager who's going to have that conversation. If you're requesting this, the manager wants to know in advance that this is the topic of the meeting. Absolutely. So that they could prepare and not be caught by surprise by something like this, be able to check in on things. You'll have a much better conversation, regardless of whatever anxiety comes up in having to ask that and state that intention. You'll have a far better meeting if you let people know that's your manager in particular, know that's the intent and the agenda for the meeting you're calling. I'm so glad you clarified that because if you think an ambush is going to get you a raise, you'd be mistaken. You're absolutely right. I think it's a great idea to send an email notes to say, this is a meeting I'd like to have with you to better understand what your decision-making criteria is and will be in the future on how I can earn a promotion with you. I'm very open to your thoughts. Could you come to the meeting and let me know as specific as possible? My plan is to listen, take notes, and to really understand what I need to do to earn your support for this. That's such a great preamble to a meeting. By the way, that's the same in every meeting. Get to the point. Make sure you give people all the information they need, or if for some reason that isn't the right measure, to stay it up front. Thanks for coming in today. I know your time is tight. What I'd like to talk to you about today is where my desk is situated. I wonder if I could take some time to advocate a movement of my physical desk. Could I talk to you about why that's important to me? Versus, I love the new office and the paint's great here 
And isn't this open concept interesting? You know, it kind of works for some and not for others. And I'm across the table thinking, okay, is he quitting? Does he have cancer? Is his wife pregnant? Does he need time? Does he want to work from home? I have no idea where you're going with this. Let's go into another side conversation of this, which is an employee that comes and says, I want to raise, and it's because I have an additional expense that was unplanned for. Maybe we want to go on vacation. Maybe it's to pay for private school that just raised their rates, something like that. But it's not related to how it is proportional to an increase in their contribution to the company's business success. How do you address that? Somebody comes to you and says, Scott, I've been working here for a couple of years. I know I'm six months away from my review, but I wonder if there's some way that I could get a raise now because I'm saving up for a vacation coming up in four months. Could we have our review session early? How do you pick that apart and help people grow as a result of that question? Then also help them understand your position that budgets are fixed and you only review them at certain points. What's your take when somebody comes to you with that request? I would ask a lot of questions. I would have an open mind. I would ask, so tell me what your motivation is, why you came today, why you think this is justified. What would be my advocacy for this. But if you're just asking for a raise because you want to buy a boat, I'm sorry, that's that's called a bank. We're not a bank. I, I think it would all depend on how it was phrased and the thoughtfulness. It might also depend on how I value their contribution. Do I think they're going to quit or leave? I mean, every situation is different. It would probably depend on how frequently I was giving them feedback. Were they delusional? Or if we just had a meeting a week ago where they were on a performance plan, the answer would be probably hell no. I think your groundedness in reality is something you need to work on. I would be gracious. I would never insult the person. I wouldn't use the word hell no. Might be thinking that, but I wouldn't say it. I think it would depend on who the person was, what their contribution looked like, what their circumstance is. Did they need a loan? Did they need an advance? Did they not understand what our process was? I would show great empathy. It might be that they needed kind of, I'm going to take off my boss hat. I'm going to put on my big brother hat. This isn't how it works here. I understand you're in a bind. And so let's talk about all the ways you could solve that. Do you need to have a garage sale? Do you need to take out a loan at a bank? Do you need to go to your grandparents? Because you're asking for a loan. It would just depend. Then there might be an instance where someone's got a hardship. And I say, you know, as a matter of fact, this isn't unreasonable. This is an exception. This is an outlier. I value an to maybe sign a confidentiality agreement. We're going to make an exception for you. Let me go see what I can do. Again, it just depends on has that person made and kept commitments? Have they honored their obligations? Have they apologized when they were wrong? Have they gone the extra mile? Have they put in more time? Have they been loyal? Have they been the opposite? Have they been a gossiper? Are they an energy depleter? All those things, if you've made yourself super valuable and you are lifting people up and you're promoting people and you do your share, I'm much more likely to go to the mat for you to human resources and say, hey, I need an exception. It's not going to break the bank. It's not going to change our corporate policy. It may be a case where maybe we offer them in advance against... I, there's all kinds of things that can be done. What I really like about your response to this is that you're showing that there's a discretionary latitude you have as a manager and the degree to which you'll exercise that discretionary energy and flexibility and advocacy depends largely on your relationship and how much they've already invested to show that they're someone who has a commitment and has a long period with the company. Yeah, let me give you a quick example. I've never shared this to anybody other than my wife. I'm going to make this very vague. Once in life, I had a large stock investment and I wanted to liquidate this stock investment, but I wasn't eligible to liquidate it. Legally, I was, but governance, I wasn't. 
And this person could have let me liquidate it and it would have been legal and ethical, but it would have been like politically difficult. It's a large amount of money. I needed the money for a variety of things like my kids' private school tuition, some obligations that I'd made. Again, ethically and legally, I could have been allowed to invest myself of this investment. But this person instead chose to loan me the money out of their personal resources. I had never borrowed money from them. It was a large amount of money. I didn't want to do it. It was a small amount of money for them, a person of enormous wealth. That It was like a rounding figure on their wealth. It was a big amount for me. This person wrote me a check on the spot. I didn't want to take the money. I needed the money. I legally could have exercised my right. This person did not want me to because of some other domino effects it might have. And this person wrote this check to me like as if it was $5. It was a lot of money like most people's salary, because there was no question. Like, this is nothing. No problem. I'm happy to do this for you. Because I had a flawless multi-decade record of rising to the occasion, honoring my commitments, meeting my commitments, apologizing when I was wrong, acknowledging when I had done bad, a whole variety of things. Like, what? All right, I feel right now. I've never shared that story. And that's not meant to puff me up, but it's a good example of when you build a track record of being a person who has behaved their way into a reputation of being trustworthy and credible, people will move mountains for you. And it's also not the solution you expected going into the meeting. Or really wanted in the moment. Before I knew it, the check was in my hand. I'm like, oh my gosh, I really need to accept this. I don't really want to. By the way, the day where that liquidation of those assets was now within their approval, the day I had the check back in their hand. Not the next day, not the next month, not the next year. This was like nothing for them. It was life-changing for me. The next day I drove to this person's house and had a check in their hand. I can guarantee you, not that I ever will again, but if I never needed something, this person would help me in a second because I behaved myself into a reputation of being trusted by making and keeping commitments. How did it change your relationship with the person when they extended that generosity to you from your perspective? It was a little bit embarrassing for me. It was a bit humbling for me, but I think this was probably three years ago or four years ago. I think it's built a bond, but no one knows about it. My wife knows about it. I don't think even his, it was a man. I don't think even his spouse knows about it because they didn't need to because of their network, how they manage their money. But I think it's built like a, a private level of trust between the two of us. That is something I treasure greatly. And I might get emotional. I talk about it more. And it's something that I think is a really private thing that you shared. And it illustrates the act of being generous and what it does to relationships and how we come through for each other and earn our way into those types of relationships. So I thank you for sharing that. Scott, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Bring it on, brother. At the beginning, we talked about someone who influenced or inspired you. And you talked about Bruce Williams. When you were a teenager, Scott, you said you weren't listening to all those other songs, but I bet you you did have a favorite song. What was a song that you loved as a teenager? This is so embarrassing. Gloria Estefan's Get On Your Feet, Get Up and Make It Happen is like my life motto. I've written about it. I love that song. I think she is an energy infuser. And I love everything about Gloria Estefan, including her culture and her ambition and her philanthropy, her humility, her commitment to family and her team. I like everything about her. What are two of the top metrics or KPIs that you track in your own business? Wow, no one's ever asked me that question before. I have a multi 
facet of business. So I'm an author, I'm a speaker, I'm also a talent literary and speaking agent. I have a lot of different businesses. One I think probably is prolific quality output, meaning the quality of my books, the quality of my keynotes, the quality of my ink column, the quality of my LinkedIn. Am I articulating a point of view that others find valuable, relatable, and actionable? So one is the quality of my output, not just the quantity, but the quality, because I'm a quantity guy, because I'm so efficient and productive, and I've got to make sure that I'm that less is more, not more is more, right? Less is better, not more is better. So one would be just the quality of my output. I think another probably is relationship building, is my whole business is built on relationships. Did I show up on time to your podcast today? Was I prepared? Was I agile and nimble enough to follow any changes that happened in the agenda? Was I engaged throughout? Do you feel like I've been a value add? I try to make sure that I make and keep commitments with those that have an opinion of me that matters, of which you are one of those. Thank you very much. Tell me, what is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? That's a multifaceted question. I'll tell you one. So I host a couple of podcasts. It just so happens that I host the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Scott Miller. Very similar to yours. You and I have fairly similar interviewing style. I also host a separate podcast called C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller, where each week I interview someone from the C-Suite. And I interviewed a woman several months ago. Her name is Kara Golden, K-A-R-A Golden, G-O-L-D-I-N. She's an entrepreneur and inventor and the founder of the company called Hint, H-I-N-T. You've heard of Hint Water. It's a, a fruit-flavored infused still water. I think it might be the only still water that's infused on the marketplace. And it's exploded. She's going to be a multi-billionaire. One of the things that it's done for me is I fell in love with her water product. She also has suntan lotion and sunscreen and chapstick and things like that. But I have fallen in love with these flavored waters. And as a result of it, I've almost eliminated all caffeine out of my diet because I'm from the South. I live in Utah, but I'm from Florida. So I would have two and a half glasses of iced tea at lunch and two and a half glasses of iced tea at dinner. And no doubt that was impacting all things that 50-year-old men go through in the middle of the night or that kind of thing. Anyway, I'm now drinking, always known as paying, for about four or five 16-ounce bottle of water a day. That's a habit that I've eliminated and taken on as I've dramatically increased my water intake. It's helping my brain, my clarity, my skin, probably my kidney stones, all kinds of things. And so I applaud the hint water. Let me tell you, don't try it because as soon as you do, you will never stop. They've got blueberry, blackberry, orange, peach, tangerine, clementine, raspberry, apple, pineapple, watermelon. Don't buy hint water because you will never stop. You just have to get on the subscription plan because <laughs> there's just so much to explore. <laughs> it's so true. They have a subscription plan. If we could just subscribe to the generosity and knowledge that you share, we would be so much better off because, in fact, through your podcast, we actually can. But let me just thank you specifically today for sharing the ideas of when you were little being inspired by Bruce Williams and being able to really be captivated because he was your community growing up. You were nerds of a feather that flocked together around those financial geeky things. You took up the idea of vulnerability and how important it is to teach through your messes, the importance of making sure that people have explicit ideas around what it is your intention is, because in the absence of facts, people make stuff up. And the importance 
importance of diffusing ambiguity because that's the path to clarity. The importance of making sure that no one feels like they're alone and that your reputation is one of the most valuable assets that we create. The importance of making sure that we calibrate whether people are working face-to-face -face or we're working remotely. The importance of showing that you care not just about their results, but caring about them. For these reasons and so many more, Scott Jeffrey Miller, author of From Management Mess to Leadership Success, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. It's been my pleasure. You're a fantastic host and interviewer. Thank you again for the platform and the spotlight. Scott, before we say goodbye for now, where can people find out more about you and your work online? You can visit scottjeffreymiller.com. We're going to link to scottjeffreymiller.com and we'll point to all of your books, the multiple podcasts that you have, all of your social media to make it super easy for people to find out what you're up to and what you're teaching through your quality posts. Thanks once again, Scott Jeffrey Miller, author of Management Mess to Leadership Success for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you, Bill. Your energy is contagious. I like, like want to go take on the day from just being around you. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.